This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Ed Catmull. Ed is not only a computer science whiz, but was one of the brilliant founders of Pixar and president of Walt Disney Animation Studios. Ed and his team created some of the most enduring movies of our time while building a company culture that values candor, accountability, and most of all, authenticity. I talked to Ed about some of the tenets he wrote about in his book, Creativity Inc., overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration, like how to be an effective manager, how to reimagine failure, and the importance of daydreaming. It's a great listen for anyone who needs a reminder of what magic can happen when creativity is untethered. But my assumption was, and I try to make this a principle, is that my assumption is that the people are good and they want to do a good job. And I think that's the assumption you should make of everybody. They don't have to earn their way in. Assume that they've got it, that they can rise to the occasion. Let's get to my chat with Ed Catmull. Well, it feels really good to be talking to you today because in my mind, you're a pioneer of unearthing and amplifying people's goodness and unleashing the power of people's potential and, and creativity and sort of, I don't know, creating a oneness through that. So I'm very excited to get the chance to talk to you. I would love for our li- our listeners to just understand a little bit, for those of, of them who may not know you, although I'm sure everybody does, a little bit about your background, you know, starting with sort of what, why you were drawn to computer science and how that led you on this wonderful trail. The iconic figures for me were Einstein and Disney, and I wanted to be an animator. But when I graduated from high school, I realized I actually didn't know how to become an animator. <laughs> 
So I switched over into physics. I found that most people think that's humorous. I would go from art to physics. But I actually find that they have a lot in common. But right at the end of graduating in physics, I switched over to computer science. And one of the reasons was that in computer science, we were at the frontier. So I went to graduate school and I took my first course in computer graphics there, intending to study some, something else. And it changed my life. And George Lucas hired me in 1979. Star Wars had just come out. And George was the only person in the industry who believed that technology was going to change the industry. And for everybody else, it was irrelevant. So George hired me in 79. And uh, basically, I was over audio and video and computer graphics. What were you working on at Lucasfilm? Well, at this time, it was to make it possible to use video editing using the computer instead of just doing film. And with audio, it was to have digital audio for better control. And then with computer graphics, it was to help with the imagery for special effects, but also for animation. And this lasted for five years. And then Steve Jobs bought the graphics group out and we formed Pixar in 1986. And we were still a ways away because the technology had to develop. And, but I would say, I, I, I believe I worked for Steve longer than anybody else. How many years? I guess 40 years, something like that. 45 years. And I watched him go through an arc because when I first met him, he was the kind of person that's a stereotype, the stereotype of Steve. And it makes a good story and it's exciting. It's like the bad boy of computer science. But he basically had been kicked out of Apple and then he bought Pixar, he formed Next. And those companies essentially failed. Pixar failed at one point. We had to do a restart of it. And over this, the course of this, 50-year arc for me was that he was so smart, he figured things out and he changed. And after he changed, the people who were with him stayed with him for the rest of his life. So when he got sick, right, nobody was going to talk about him, even though people were writing. So the actual story of Steve near the end of his life was never told. And people think, oh, the person who behaved like the early Steve made the great apple. It's not true. This was the classic hero's journey. He's kicked out. He wanders in the wilderness. He learns his lessons. He comes back a changed person. And it was the changed Steve who made the great apple. What did he learn? What were those lessons? Well, I, I think one of the lessons, one of a big lesson was that this really is the kind of effort that brings in a lot of people, that the way you treat people and the way you think about them is very important, critical, actually. I would say to begin with, I didn't think Steve was very empathetic. And I didn't think empathy was the kind of thing that changes much in a person. But with Steve, it did. I found the way he treated people was different. I believe Early on in his career, he tried to make everything a home run. I get the best possible deal. 
And by the time we got to making Toy Story, Steve realized that you can't think that way. You have to think in terms of partnerships. So when we entered into our second deal with Disney, he literally said to us privately that the only way to make this work was to have a genuine 50-50 partnership with Disney. Not do a little better, but not get taken. It had to be thought of as 50-50. That was the moral high ground for him. So it was really, it was very emotional at the end to see a person have to, you know, die who got through that change. I understand. It's really beautiful and so courageous of him to be able to exhibit that kind of vulnerability to grow his empathy and, and patience and to, to cultivate accountability that way. That's so beautiful. And how lucky you are to have had a partner like that. It's very cool. Do you still believe in that energetic, the, the, the parody of that sort of energetic partnership, that 50-50, is that, was that an important lesson that you brought into your management style somehow? Yes, I'd started off early. As I mentioned, one of the right concepts was that we shared in an open community. And incidentally, uh, since we, as I said, we published everything, when I went to Lucasfilm, then George didn't object if we published everything. He never said anything about it. We just did it. Publish what? Like your open source, your software, or publish how you were doing things? Or? It's how we're doing them. It's our papers. Because we were come up, coming up with a lot of technical advances. And I knew something. And I don't, the intellectual competitors at the time didn't fully get this. They thought we were kind of close. And I knew that we weren't close. And so we weren't trying to come up with the secret and hang on to it. We were, we, we were revealing our secrets. We were publishing everything because the very best people want to join in on open communities. So we got the very best people to join us at Lucasfilm. Made a huge difference. Amazing people, most of whom are still there. Wow. And then when I went to Pixar, where, where Steve is now really the, basically the, the owner and the primary shareholder when we, when we went public, he never questioned the decision about publishing. Now, he's known to be secretive, and Apple doesn't publish everything, but he understood that we were doing something different. Because he's really smart, he realized what we were doing was not the same thing what Apple was doing. Mm. So, and, and then when Disney acquired us, Disney never questioned it. Now, by this time we had a reputation, but through my whole career, it's like, okay, we're in a community, we, we participate with others, and sometimes people, I mean, they are competing, it's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Well, because certainly you can share how you are arriving at something or how you're technically doing something, but the way that you all told stories at Pixar is not an easily replicable thing. You know, and that's the funny part is, in my book I explain what we did, I talked about the brain trust and how people work with each other and support each other and the logic behind it. And what I found was that in the film industry, people don't want to work that way. <laughs> that's why I quit. <laughs> <laughs> 
the making of these stories is really, it's a, it's a group effort, but partly because if you're doing something emotional, you get richness and depth if you're tapping into the emotions and experiences of the other people who are working on the film with you. And unless you are vulnerable and make it safe, you're actually cutting yourself off from that richness. So you have to make it safe. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be really honest. And I won't say it's been easy. I mean, there are sometimes some groups have worked really well together. And sometimes I would say there are weaknesses and the weaknesses come because people aren't as honest or vulnerable about what they're going through. Because these are personal experiences. Weaknesses come because people are not honest about their vulnerability. That's amazing. It actually makes perfect sense. But I think those are the people who consider vulnerability weakness. Well, the, the, the thing that we have done over the years is we have worked really hard uh, in certain rooms to make it safe. So the brain trust is one that people have heard about. And the brain trust operates under certain rules. And not every meeting is like this. And it's evolved over time. Uh, and it isn't actually a group of people. So somebody might have the impression, oh, the brain trust is this group of really smart people. It's not. It's actually the way we run a meeting. So when we, we screen a film, it's like every three or four months, it's ready for other people to see. Then a group of people come together to, to talk about the film for two hours or two to three hours afterwards, or there might be a two-day off-site. And the basic rules are, one is it's peer-to-peer. The only people in the room are the colleagues, the filmmakers. And there's a respect for each other that when they're giving their notes, they're getting notes from people who know what they're talking about. The second one, this is a tricky one, and that is to keep the power out of the room. So this room, even though it's got experienced people and the most powerful people in the room, it's to keep that power out. And so the rule is that room cannot, cannot override the creative team that's on the film itself. And, and everybody's told that, right? You, you, know, you can't, nobody can override them. It's their choice. And we don't even make any heavy dis- duty decisions if something's going right or wrong in the time period after it. Because you don't want to overload the emotional impact of that because the people coming in, they, they know that the film's got problems. So they're already nervous. They feel that vulnerability. And so you have to make it okay and not make them feel threatened that, you know, that some hammer's gonna come down either in that room or as a result of that room. But as you know, there are powerful people in a room. There are people with strong voices and people do have their emotions and they're going to be sensitive to it. So you've got these emotional issues going on of either deferring to authority or wanting to show off, not wanting to hurt anybody. You know, the whole range of emotions are coming up in this meeting. One of the rules for the powerful people is they're supposed to shut the hell up for the first 10 or 15 minutes. If a powerful person speaks, they set the tone for the meeting. 
And you're much more effective if you enter a discussion rather than set the tone. Interesting. Um, the third one is <clears throat> the requirement is that you need to speak what you really think and listen to honest notes. And, and I've seen times when people think something is bad and they don't say so. And you can't succeed if you don't say what you really think, but you can say it in the right way. So if, if I look over at the history of the Pixar films and there were 21 by the time I retired and there were 11 down at Disney after going down and, and then taking charge of Disney. And the, if I look at that whole range, then the question would be, how often have we lived up to those principles? In general, usually, we haven't lived up to it. Every once in a while, something goes wrong. Ego, the, the relationship, there might be too many people in the room or too few people or, or the wrong people. So every once in a while, it goes off the rails and we have to redo it and re rearrange things. But every once in a while, magic happens. And by magic, I mean that ideas come and go without people becoming attached to them. Everything is focused on the problem. And that people might be intense, there might even be shouting, but the whole understanding in the room is that it's about the problem. It's not about personal things, it's not about do I look good or have I done a good job or have I impressed somebody? Did I make a contribution? That thinking gets in the way. We have similar tenets, similar principles that we try to work by at Goop. We say, you know, speak straight is number one. Listen generously is number two. And so I wonder how you have helped to cultivate that. Like, are there tactical things that you say to teams in, or, or what are the, or what is the sort of undercurrent of the culture and how do you create that so people feel empowered to be honest in a difficult situation or take critical feedback? Well, since this group has been together for a long time, then the bulk of them have in fact learned to trust each other and they have a vested interest in the success of others. It took a while to build that, but we were really lucky in that our first few directors and creative leaders came up with this way of, of working on their own. So this, the, the next step was to say, okay, what threatens it? Why would it not work? So we had to stay ahead of it. So we think about whether or not something works, not in that meeting, but after the meeting. Was that a, did it work well? Did everybody behave in the way that we would expect? That doesn't mean just being nice. It means, is, are, are they being honest and respectful? Mm. And uh, I, I, people do learn that. Now, when, went, when we went down to Disney, because Disney acquired Pixar and then we were put in charge, this is back in 2006. Of all of Disney animation, right? You took charge of all of it. Right. All of Disney animation. And they had gone basically 17 years without a hit. So after Lion King, it was all downhill. And they, they knew it. I mean, they're, they're smart people. And so when we arrived, I didn't know if, if they weren't talented, the people that were left there, 
or whether they were just managed badly. But my assumption was, and I try to make this a principle, is that my assumption is that the people are good and they want to do a good job. And I think that's the assumption you should make of everybody. They don't have to earn their way in. Assume that they've got it, that they can rise to the occasion. Occasionally you may not be right, but in our, our experience is that 95% of the time people rise to the occasion. And that's actually a pretty good rate for it. So that we just assumed that they were good. And I got up in front of them over two meetings and explained all of the principles, spending about three or four hours in total. They all nodded their heads. They wanted to do it. But it took two to three years for it to become ingrained in the culture. And this was starting from a point where they nodded their heads in agreement. Right. So it, it's not easy. Were they scared? Were they looking over their shoulders? What, what changed so that they went from nodding in agreement and not understanding to really being inculcated in the culture of Pixar? Well, the, interestingly enough, one of the rules we did to help them was is that neither studio was allowed to do any production work for each other. We kept them as two totally separate studios, different marketing departments, different finance departments. And there was a, re- a logic for it. And that is, first of all, we didn't want Disney to think that they were rescued by Pixar. So if they didn't solve their problem, then they would never actually feel like they were really good. And they had some serious problems. So we, we kept them separate. However, obviously they can talk with each other. They can beg, borrow, and steal ideas from each other, but they don't have to. The decisions of how they work are theirs, which is counter to what most companies do. If you have two businesses, let's say, that are in the same business, why would you have two marketing departments or two finance? And my view is things are changing so fast and you don't want them to be too homogeneous. You want variance and variability. You want different personalities in the groups. Some of it was just earning the trust of each other. There were a couple of challenges along the way, but since they had to be on their own to solve it, they they realized that when they solved a problem, and their first one was for the movie called Bolt, when they finished it, they got really high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. They were very proud that they had solved it. Disney didn't have a good reputation, so it wasn't a well-known film. And to be honest, one year after Bolt came out, Steve called me up at home and he said, you know, I got a, a DVD and I watched Bolt for the first time. It's like one year later. <laughs> and he said, this is a really good movie. Said, yeah, it is. <laughs> but Disney was learning this and they were earning each other's, each other's trust along the way, but also they were beginning to earn the trust of the audience. And so when it got tangled, they got critical success and financial success, and they wanted both. It wasn't just about making great art, and it wasn't just about making money, that they would never be happy unless people wanted to see what they made, which meant you got, that came with the financial, but, but it, it came because it was good. 
Well, and it also follows one of your principles there, right? Which was that quality is the best, quality is the business plan or quality is the best business plan. Yeah, it's, it's what precedes everything else. It's, we're just going to make it good. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So how do you think that younger businesses, whether they're, you know, creative businesses or, or software, you know, and who are in this day and age, or maybe less so now, but really pushed for growth, you know, growth was kind of that top line revenue metric was sort of like what we were all being pushed towards. And sometimes I think that's, that can be in conflict with quality as the business plan. So how, how do you advise people to measure those to or balance those things or can you not do you just only focus on the absolute best quality that you you can produce and let that be the marketing lever well i first of all i just say that we were lucky because with george and then with steve and then with disney they all inherently got this notion that you make it good first and disney when it never actually tried to tell us what to do or what film to make. Some people assumed that they did, but there were films that we made that marketing department would scratch their heads on, but they never tried to influence or stop us. So if you make a movie about a rat that wants to cook, right, this is not an obvious film to make. <laughs> and, or it sounds make- gross, I'm not gonna lie. It sounds gross. Yeah, it, it sounds gross. It's one of our very best films, but like, it's the actually, best film ever. It's my favorite one. The, the tougher it is, then the harder you have to work to get meaning for it. And the other one was Up. Yeah. Where in the case of Up, you've got an old man that floats away in a house with a, with, with a stowaway. <laughs> and it kind of doesn't matter how good it is. You're never going to sell a lot of toy walkers. Interesting. Right. Right. So, but what it did was it said to everybody, to the audience, the critics, and the employees of Pixar, making it good was the most important thing. And then every once in a while you come along with something which knocks it out of the park financially also. So Toy Story itself and the the whole sequence just did very well in other fronts besides the movie in terms of the theme parks and consumer products. And then down at Disney, uh, in fact, it was, it was kind of funny, we made Tangled 
And first of all, it's called Tangled because marketing said that little boys are the ones that make the decisions about what the family goes sees. Because a girl will go see a boy film, but a boy won't see a girl film. So that was the logic. So they named it Tangled, right? They're hiding the fact that it's a musical. And if you look at the promotional material, you're seeing a, the lizard and a uh, horse in the trailers. So it's like, oh, okay, you don't actually know that this is a musical. So the film did really well. So the, the next musical we made was Frozen. So now Frozen has two princesses. And once again, they hide the fact. And I said to the marketing guy, can we reach the point where we're hiding the fact of what the movie is? And the answer was, we don't think so, wow. right? So, and, and they thought that it would do 70% of what Tangle did. Well, obviously it didn't. <laughs> Frankly, I was miffed because I thought, well, come on, at least shoot for doing as well as Tangled because it was very successful. I would never have guessed it did as well as it did. But aim for that level. But all the projections were coming in at 70%. Of course, it came in and blew the, the, the roof off. But it also was coming out of the emotions of the people who were there and the things they went through in their lives. And whenever we do that, when we actually tap into emotions, we're also tapping into something that's connecting with the audience out in the world. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do. But there's, there seems to be an ethos, you know, under you guys, whereby there was this unleashing of creativity, like a real risk-taking. I mean, is, even in those examples that you mentioned at Pixar with Up and Ratatouille. And I wonder how, if that was something that you thought about or what, what the risk tolerance was, or if it just didn't matter and that the story was good, was the most important thing and that you could get the audience to follow along. Well, in, in the case of the 21 pictures at, at Pixar, there was only one film, 22nd, that we didn't finish, we, we aborted. Likewise, at Disney, there was only one film that we aborted. And part of the logic, which isn't obvious to most people, is you take something that's risky, but you actually haven't said this risky idea is the thing that's at the end. It's just a risky start. You say, okay, I've got the risk, but when problems come up, I'm gonna work on them and solve them. So the risk isn't this permanent thing, it's the thing you're working on on a continuous basis. Every day you're wrestling with it. So if you think about risky things as not permanent, but temporary, they're my problems, the creativity is solving the problems. But whatever the problems are, you're, you're, that's your creativity. Right. Solving problems. And so do you think in this, in this day and age right now, you know, in this COVID world, how can companies use their creativity or should they use their creativity to see their, see their way through this, this kind of a challenging time? And how do you think management and leadership is being affected both in positive and negative ways during a, a, a crisis like this? The way I look at my career was it was bracketed by two big events. One 
was the launching of Sputnik in 1957. And what was interesting about it, because we had crises, you know, there, there's always some crisis. What was different about this crisis was everybody got the immediate challenge that was existential. It didn't matter whether you were a, a farmer or the president, you knew what that meant when they could put a missile anywhere in the world. All right, but here what was different about it was in addition to responding to the immediate crisis, it's like door number one, you gotta go through it. The other one was they started this thing which was a long-term investment in young people. This is what ARPA was. They now changed the name to DARPA. But they funded with very low bureaucracy graduate students all over the United States and that was how the field of computer science got kicked off and they made rapid and impressive changes that have affected us to this day. Which meant that this group, which frankly almost like fell on the cracks, but they took a long-term view. Now, if you go back in the 70s, we think, oh, we got the, oh, the warning signal hit by the head by two by four. So you go through door number one, I got to take care of that but they didn't look at the underlying problem, which is the more common thing. So here we are, we've got this worldwide crisis. You got to respond to the immediate one. But the other one is, door number two, is do we also think about long-term effects? What do we do? What's our, how do we think going forward? And the crisis isn't a sudden day, single day like Sputnik was. But I look at any crisis, is that kind of thing. Like you have to respond to the immediate problem. The question is, will you take the time to think about long-term solutions, long-term implications? This is where quality comes in. As a company, you have to respond to immediate things to stay alive as a company. Completely get it, been there, done that also. The other door is optional. How important is the quality or the long-term view that, that you've got for your company, for your life, for your family, for the world? Will you take the time to look at a long-term solution? I think particularly because in a crisis when everything feels so acute, and I was actually thinking about this earlier today and with our my business, having gotten through hopefully what is the most difficult part of this period of time so far. And I realized how in a crisis, how tactical one gets like, okay, we've got to make sure we do this and that and make sure there's money here and there and you know that everything's in order and we're optimized to do X, Y, and Z for all the little things until the end of the year. And I started realizing like, wow, I've really stopped daydreaming since March about where we're going and where we're going to be in, in two years, which is dangerous most, you know, probably. Yeah. It's, it's, it, and the truth is there are times when you have to do something. You have to respond to the immediate crisis. Right. And I, I would say, because I've seen this often, people only respond to the crisis. They don't go back into the mode of where we're going what's the nature of what we're doing, what's the quality, because you can get lost in the, in the crisis of the day and they're unending. 
I want to ask you about, you know, I've never been up to Pixar, unfortunately, but, you know, you, you always hear and, you know, in books you read or, you know, Bob Iger's book talking about the experience of walking in or, you know, my friend Ricky Strauss, who worked at Disney for a long time in the marketing, like the way that people talk about when you walk into Pixar and what it feels like, it feels like some magical humming land where anything is possible. What the hell is going on in there that is so palpable and inspiring to people? And why is everybody able to feel it when they cross through the threshold? Well, ironically, it's, it's Steve's design. Now, Steve Jobs originally designed the building and with his original design, he pissed the women off. We, we had an offsite once and they're all yelling at him. And <laughs> he, he was just so frustrated to just say, I don't get it. Why don't they see what I'm trying to do? And, and in fact, they were right. Why were they pissed off? Well, it had to do with the fact that he wanted people to send us. He only had one bathroom in this building that holds 600 people in one place. Oh yeah, that's that's terrible. Yeah, it was it, it was just a bad idea. <laughs> so I took him down to a where, where Disney Animation was, and they had rented the building that was the 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 building that Lockheed had for the Skunk Works. In other words, the original Skunk Works building was that one they rented. And on the outside, it was just a big box, but because nobody cared about it and the rest of the corporation, animation group designed it the way they wanted. And it had a lot of good things about the way it was designed. So I took Steve down, we walked through it. Like what? What are two, three things that were good about it? Well, in terms of the hallways, the openness and the way people get around and see each other and communicate was very good was a multi-floor building, but, but the way they opened up the stairwells so that you could see and pass each other. Mm. So there were several things of that sort that just have to do with interaction with, between people. So he came back, he met with the architects and redid everything. So the building has got at the center, the atrium, the three theaters that we use, the eating area, the, the meeting rooms and the, the bathrooms at the various corners. So, and, and the, the, because it's two floors, there's a bridge connecting them, but now the bridge is open because you're not looking out over this space. So the entry is to come into the middle of the building. And a lot of times people think, well, at the center you put the most important stuff, we put the executive offices <laughs> or things like that. <laughs> And from Steve's point of view, the most important thing was to have it so this is where people crossed and had accidental encounters. And it, what it does is it gives an energy to the building. And you feel, you do feel it when you go in there. And, you know, you walk in and, you know, you, the other thing I have to say is that the kitchen staff, in most corporations, the food is contracted out to an outside company. At Disney, the kitchen staff all work for the company. And when we give our film bonuses, which is, a film does well, the bonus is based upon the number of 
a number of weeks, right? So you, you might get, let's say, six weeks of salary for the bonus. It doesn't matter who you are. Or even if you worked on the film, you all get the same number of weeks. So for the people who are serving the food, they're not second class. And it's one thing, it keeps creeping back in, but over the, our history, we keep trying to root this thing out because we don't like the notion of like a first and second class. There are differences in skills and abilities and, and so forth, but the notion of people feeling second class is not good for any company at all. And in the case of our kitchen, the kitchen is not profit-making. So it's supposed to be, you pay, the, the, the kitchen is supposed to pay for itself, but it's not making money. It's not their job is to make money. But we also don't give away free food because it turns out people aren't respectful of things that aren't free. So they're paying at cost. And, and therefore, for the people working in the kitchen, they know the people appreciate what they do. That's the reward. People appreciate it because they care. Now, I'm giving this as a, like an example of something that people wouldn't think about normally. Right. But it makes a difference when you walk in and how people are treated, what the energy is. And in fact, there are a lot of inadvertent encounters. It served its purpose well. I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, in the book, you talk a lot about the importance of candor. How does candor work in the workplace? And how is there a difference between candor and honesty? Well, the reason I use the word candor instead of honesty is that Honesty is a loaded term. There's the opposite of honesty is dishonest. Well, nobody wants to be <laughs> talk about being dishonest. To some extent, you can't use the word because of the implication of, of the other side of it. But if you talk about, if you use the phrase candor and say, well, somebody isn't being candid, you kind of get that holding back a little. It's really the only reason. It's not like there's any fundamental difference other than the weighting that comes behind it. And a lot of words are weighted, like failure is a word that's weighted. And failure has uh, two meanings, and there's a big difference. One of them is that in life, we all know that we've experienced some failures and we've learned from them and we grew from them. This is the educational meaning of failure. The other meaning is when we start to get when we're in school, which is if you failed, it's because you didn't work hard, you screwed up, you're not smart, you're stupid. That in business, bridges fail, relationships fail, and in politics and in business, then failures are frequently used as bludgeons with which to hit opponents. So there's this real aura of danger around failure. So we basically find it emotionally impossible to separate the two meanings. And so as in leaders, you know, when we talk about it, if we say somebody failed, then that's usually used in a negative connotation. We don't have the ability to call a failure, an educational experience until after it happens. <laughs> we can't say, oh, I'm going to fail because I'm going to learn a lot. No, actually, if I fail, I'm going to get 
really screwed or damaged or, you know, something really bad can happen. So it doesn't matter how many good experiences you had in the past, you still are just afraid of it as a failure going forward. And, and I think that as a leader, you have to appreciate that that is something that people carry with them. Do you think that men and women fail differently or experience failure differently? I've wrestled with it and I made some missteps in terms of how I think or talk about it. And then I finally realized I can't pretend that I'm going to understand all those issues. And what I realized was that I can never be another gender. I can never be other than another ethnicity. I can never be raised from another culture, which means there are experiences that I cannot have. All I can do is have faith that people who have different experiences bring something of great value, even when I don't know what it is. And I think one of the tragedies of our world today is that people overvalue what they can see and undervalue what they can't see. And what they can't see is huge. As you can't see it, we have no idea how big it is. So I, starting from a, a point of saying, Oh, someone's going to bring something. I don't know what it is, but I believe they will add something. And once in a while, you're wrong. You get it wrong. But usually, it's big because something arises, regardless of their backgrounds or their differences, that's going to add and make us better. It's funny because it strikes me that the, the seen part is the sort of science part, and the unseen part is the God part or the art part. And I think we're living in a time where if it's not quantifiable on some level, there's a reticence to fold it into the experience. I don't know if you feel that way. And you certainly have the license to operate from both places. Well, well, I would say that parts of it, I only came to a better understanding recently, but I I think in my whole life, and I came up with a, in a really nice neighborhood and background and family, but I just always believe that if you trust in others, that it, you actually end up ahead, that it's a, it is a faith in others. Regardless of how you, you call it, it's, it's faith because you can't see it. And if you believe that they're going to do it, and they know it when you believe in them, you're not asking them for them. I wouldn't say, well, give me the following because this is what I expect of you. Well, that's saying what's what I know, right? Well, if I know it, what's the point? Am I just looking for hands? No. <laughs> you want somebody who's always going to bring something that you don't know. And, and you just, but you have to articulate it and say, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. Right. It's sort of reminds me of something you said in the beginning, which I wanted to ask you about, which was you said that some people were surprised that you went from wanting to be an animator into physics, but that actually art and physics were very close. How are they? Can you explain more? Well, you are, uh, you're trying to understand, you're trying to express, you are looking at things you don't know. And, but also in terms of art, well, what, you know, art actually carries this really, really, or covers a wide spectrum. 
it can be pure expression, your expression of playing the piano. You didn't actually write the music, but you add something in the expressing of it. So we'd say, well, that's a creative expression. Writing of any kind, not just fictional writing, but of any kind of writing. How do you express something and capture it and express something to somebody else? And in the case of the sciences and technology, it's, I'm trying to understand this. It doesn't quite make sense. And then you end up with a group of people, you're building on what's there and you're trying to understand things that you don't know. But, but if you look in, in relationships or with families, you know, some, it doesn't go smoothly all the time. You're trying to understand it. You know, you know I will make mistakes. What do I do? You know, do I leap to conclusions? Am I doing the right thing? And with every one of them, you just have to ask this question. So the difference between being open to the unknown, I think is in common across all of these. It is, it is the unknown. The unknown, the mystery, is underlying the great work. And it will always be that way. Why do you think that we, or is it, is it cultural or societal? Why do we let so many things get in between us and our inspiration? And how do we unblock those paths? Well, it's a, it's a really fundamental question. And to be honest, I don't have easy answers for it. Recognizing that, that the fear, fear of failure, fear of not looking good, keeps arising. It happens to people all the time. And, and frankly, if people are in a, a position of having some fear or not knowing or being timid, they almost never say it. So what you have are unspoken fears or you have people who draw assumptions and they don't say what their assumptions are. So I just give you this one example. I mean, it's kind of a, for me, it's a, it's a funny example, but as Pixar formed, we had all these people, none of whom had made a film before, but they also made, they, they played a lot of jokes. They're racing around the halls at night. They had a lot of fun and played practical jokes. So this part of the legacy of Pixar is doing that. Now, as we became very successful, those same people got married and had kids and they went home at night. Now they still loved the fun, they still loved the practical jokes, but they weren't staying at work late at night to do them. Now they're successful. New people come in and we can talk about the history, but what they see is those people, they respect and they're trying to impress are going at home at night. If they go and play some practical jokes, are they going out on a limb? Now, the answer for a lot of them is no, they're going to be cautious about this, but they won't say it. Who's going to say, no, I'm afraid of the old people. So I'm not going to do anything that makes me stand out. All right. So they don't say anything. Meanwhile, the older people that have been around for a long time are saying to each other, what's wrong with these new people? They don't have the spirit of fun that we used to have. 
but they don't say it to the people, they say it to each other. Well, if nobody's talking about it, how do you find out it's a problem? So how do you stay tuned in to what's going on? And I, I have to say sometimes after certain incidents, I, I'll find out something that happened a long time ago and I didn't know about it. And one of my favorite ones, we, every, every other year we have a, what we call Pixar Palooza, because we have about 18 to 20 bands at Pixar. So we have a concert that goes from four o'clock till nine o'clock where they play music. Well, we're in Emeryville. Our security has good relationships with the police, but at nine o'clock it's curfew time for sound. So and there, there's always people complaining ahead of time because we're making any sound at all. You know, get a life. <laughs> so we get right up to nine o'clock. The last band, band is up. They're really loud. And at nine o'clock, the police come onto our campus. And, you know, they're talking with our guys. They go, okay, it's nine o'clock. I got to shut it down. So security goes in. They shut it down. And it's over. Which means, in one respect, the police shut it down. Except all I did was say it's curfew time. So nothing bad happened. Now, the, the thing was... There were people who thought they were in trouble and it was only like six months later when I found out by accident that they thought they were in trouble because of the police shutting the thing down. It's like, whoa, whoa, you weren't in trouble. Nothing happened. <laughs> but those, like those hidden things, uh, you always have to look for it. Absolutely. That's really, that's, that's great advice. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for joining me in conversation with Ed Catmull. His book, Creativity Inc., Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Stand in the Way of True Inspiration, is available wherever books are sold. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.